0: Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about fidelity through a vehicle that I'm going to call Letters to Myself and Saying No. This inappropriate conversation has a high probability of being embarrassing. I would say for me on a personal level, it's going to remind me in some ways of episode two, which introduced the author. It's also going to remind me a bit of episode 95, calling your shot. It's going to carry an explicit language tag. One of the things that I'm going to do is cover the rest of the story for a couple of things I've hit in the past and stopped incomplete one, I'm going to deal with the follow-up to a piece of the puzzle in Inappropriate Conversations 107, a eulogy for homophobia. I'm going to finish the story of that one drunken evening. And the other story that I'm going to pick up where I'd left off is the episode 52 story of V8 Nate, uh, the rest of the story of that character that originally was part of the episode called First Person Comedy. So to do so, I'm going to refer to some written material. I've got notes in other words. So in the three stories, I want to share three examples of saying no. One of them I have written down in a letter that I've reviewed somewhat recently to try to find some facts for this particular episode. Another one will be a cold reading, something I haven't looked at in well more than a year, probably more than a couple of years. And I'll introduce this whole idea of letters to myself in just a moment. But first, if there's an overarching theme that I think will become really apparent when I get to the last story, which I'm telling just purely from memory with without a lot of notes, without any, you know, previous journaling behind it, it's that one of the ways that I think that I personally attempt to stay faithful is setting a standard that says I've got this collateral built up in the past and I want to honor that legacy. There's more to it, in other words, than just my relationship with my wife and everything being centered around that. That is, of course, the most important thing of all. But I have said no in the past, and that's got to count for something. And maybe as I work my way through this, there'll be questions about my character, possibly. Or maybe as I work my way through this, that's going to make just a little bit more sense. Because one of the cliches you hear, it's really a key element of the abstinence-only movement is that you know, whoever you have sex with the very first time, well, that's forever. You'll never be able to separate yourself from that memory. You're sort of stuck with it. It forms an intimate bond that can never be erased. It's going to be baggage that you're going to carry into any future relationship. And even if you only, quote unquote, slip up one time, that one mistake from your past is going to haunt your future marriage and impact your intimacy. Now, just to be as deferential as I can, it's not like there isn't some truth to that point of view, that there is a validity there. But to me, the big lie that's inherent in that worldview is a lie that I'm in a unique position to understand and identify. Because I don't have that previous sexual partner. I have done this the quote unquote right way from an abstinence only, a very conservative Christian perspective. But I do have still those moments in my life where I didn't do something. In other words, I didn't lead my life in modern America in such a way that I never had any dating experience or any potential sexual encounters. And the thing that jumps out at me from my own personal experience is that sometimes the encounters that you decline, the ones that got away, the missed opportunities can haunt you just as well. When I get to the storytelling, I think it'll be pretty clear that I've got very vivid memories of things that didn't happen. So in some sense, I have a hard time putting way too much weight in the you know, one premarital encounter that somebody may have had as something that's going to haunt them for the rest of their life. As if, if they pulled back at the last minute or you know, sort of just said no, that there wouldn't be any memory, either an actual memory of something that did occur or what we might call an echo of a possible world. But first, I think I need to introduce this idea of letters to myself. It's a journaling technique that I've used before in my life, sometimes on a person-to-person basis where the relationship was very strong. And in some ways, it was both a cliche, but something that made a lot of sense to say, hey, on, maybe on one level, that relationship's so close that you could say, hey, we could be the same person, at least in this regard, or at least when it comes to this story. So the term, uh, writing a letter to myself, is not foreign to me. But in this one occasion, I did it during a time of Lent. Now, Inappropriate Conversations has had two or three mentions in the past about what I would call Lenten writing experiments. And this one is another. Those first came fairly early in the decade of the 90s. This is the most recent example. It's an incomplete work. I believe that it will always remain an incomplete work because if you do a writing experiment for Lent, between Ash Wednesday and, say, Palm Sunday is your target writing dates, and you don't finish during that time span. Well, you're probably not going to. And this failed experiment goes back to the year 2006. Here is the introduction, just to give a sense of it. And you know, one of the things that my family from time to time will make fun of me for, I allow myself to be an easy target. And it's not unusual for me to decide to leave myself a message by calling either my home or my office. Or even my cell phone, and leaving a message that I will then pick up later. And I, you know, how do I don't know how people do this. I just say, "Hey, Greg, this is me," (laughs) and that's how I actually start this particular series of letters to myself. A neo-surrealist saving the price of postage with "Dear Me." It has been 12 years since I last took this type of undertaking during Lent. Rather than giving something up like chocolate. I'm giving myself over to the writing of these letters, letters I will never send. That bears repeating. I must commit that these letters will never be sent. No backsliding on that. Any thoughts here worth sharing with the other person must be rewritten in a way that is personal to that old friend, rather than being personal to me. That's why the format is letter writing. You see, this is a letter to myself. I have written under this title before. A very small, select group of friends have actually received from me, written to them, letters to myself. And I hope it was perceived in the way I intended. A complimentary statement of intimacy within the expanse of friendship. No, I don't use the word confine for friendship, because I don't think that accurately portrays agape. You may talk about the confines of closed expressions of affection, like communication designed to get something from another person but not true friendship, not sacred friendship. Why write this now? Part of the reason is that I never wrote sacred history. And some of the facts behind that nonfiction exploration of true intersexual friendship are 25 to 30 years old by now. There are truths that must be told before they are forgotten. Again, these are the truths I must tell myself, myself and my God, without worrying about others. In fact, it is a fair question to wonder how much undiluted truth would be told if these same letters were written to deliver to others. In the early 1990s, I engaged in two Lenten writing experiments under the heading Temptations from the Wilderness. That's both a lame and appropriate subtitle. I won't use it here. The semi-fiction of the second one, Some Assembly Required, had moments of explicit adult content. You cannot tell the story of V8 Nate under any assumed name without explicit language and adult content. This one will have adult content, too. Perhaps you cannot tell the story of what a young man truly thinks between the ages of 12 and 24 without explicit language. There, I've warned myself. Now, if for whatever reason you are reading this, if you are not me, then you've been warned, too. I did not write this for a general audience. I have specifically blocked the idea of writing it for those I'm purportedly writing it to. So if I have chosen to share these letters with you, please take that as a sacred trust. I'm laying out some truths for me, for now, and perhaps for posterity, for others. I cannot control what happens when I'm gone. All I can do now is try to tell the truth, or, in the spirit of Lent, Pray and tell the truth. Truly, Greg. Hi, I'm Tony Pucci and I lost my sister Jenny to ALS. Songs for Jenny is a charity CD for ALS Patient Care and Research. Otherwise known as Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS is a disease without a cure. The Songs for Jenny CD features my music along with guest vocalists from around the world. All proceeds from the sale of the Songs for Jenny CD will be donated to the ALS Association of America, Minnesota Chapter. To find out more and to purchase the CD, please visit www.songsforjenny.com. After a couple of the episodes related to drinking, here recently, number 102, and specifically number 107, I've received some feedback about really maybe how on some level, it's kind of amazing that I have the kind of good and vivid memories that I do, even stories of being very intoxicated and really stories where you don't really know firsthand what's going on because you've made the mistake of kind of losing your grip on the situation. And maybe for people who've been willing to grant, just because it seems obvious that I've got a fairly staggering memory for better or worse. I think we also have to sort of say, hey, you know what? How can you recall some of those other things? How you can, can you recall a drunken night at a party where you were upset because the host of the party gave some of your money to some friends of his and they went out and wasted it, wasted it on really bad wine? That story, part of the reason I'm able to remember it, part of the reason that the details are perhaps more fresh in my mind than they should be is because of writing exercises like this one, because of exercises like letters to myself. So I want to recount these three stories of saying no, these three moments of fidelity where I wasn't being faithful to any of the girls involved or you know young women. I was in some ways being faithful to my future wife, but really in my mind, I, I see that as a cliche. I was being faithful to my future self. And as we'll see by the telling of these tales, yeah, it's not as simple as somebody made me an offer and I turned them down in this case, I'm referring to just saying no, really the declines coming from situations beyond my control. And truthfully, as I get through the stories in the order I want to tell them, my role, how affirmatively I made a decision one way or the other, you know, goes from being complete happenstance at the beginning to very intentional at the end. And I'm going to try to tell it warts and all with meaning, perhaps a great deal of detail and also a great deal of explicit language. One other note, before I jump into this journal entry from a few years ago, is that I'm going to tell the stories out of sequence. It just makes sense, based on my degree of control in each situation, that I tell the middle story first, then the original first one, and then the latest in the series. So we're dealing with the early part of the junior year in high school, in one instance, the early part of the sophomore year in high school in the other instance and my freshman year in college near the end of that first freshman year in college in the third instance and i keep kind of being shocked by myself in some ways when i look back on these stories and kind of recognize that the character that is me in this storytelling is actually younger than either one of my kids are today and that that in some ways is more than just a little bit disconcerting I, in last week's episode, talking about adultery and divorce, I spoke a little bit about you know the nature of the films that John Hughes was making in the 1980s versus the other films which were being made for that sort of teenage marketplace, those coming-of-age stories. And what we benignly describe as coming-of-age stories now, back then, featured a lot of nudity that was apparently, obviously, at the time when you watch it, characters who were underage. Well, I'm going to be describing some Instances of sexuality and sexual behavior now, which are also equally characters of underage. And of course, the defense I've got for myself is I was also at the same time equally underage. So I want to jump in with the story that I left really at the point that my friends had taken me from this party because I was too drunk, I was out of control, I'd, I needed to be put to sleep. I needed to be put literally in my own bed, and I want to pick it up at the point where I have consumed a ridiculous and irresponsible amount of a variety of alcohols, but it hadn't hit me yet. Instead, we'd eaten some food to go with the drinks, and we were back in the swimming pool, and that's where I'll start. The weather was unseasonably warm, and the pool was heated, and the moon provided the perfect amount of light in the night sky. Everything was going well. My head, and not just my body, was swimming. Remember, this is a letter written from me to a, quote, girlfriend of mine, where our only sexual encounter of any sort had been some kissing, and as we'll get to in the telling of this story, a very strange night that might have involved the sucking of toes. We'll see. It finally occurred to me that you and me were going to face a decision about what to do with the balance of this night, not just the evening, but also the night. Then I realized that my head was swimming for other reasons that weren't about you. I started to lose precise control of the motor functions necessary to swim well. So I paddled over to the shallow end. There, I latched onto the side of the pool and threw up everything I'd eaten all over Scott's sidewalk. Great, I thought to myself. First, I don't get him the gin he needs to stay out of trouble with his father. Now, I barf all over the sidewalk in front of his pool. And big time, too, with lots of just-eaten snacks. Forgive me, but you were probably only the third thing on my list of anxieties. And my anxiety was more about how the development might impact you than us. You called for help. Buddy got a hose and started spraying off my face. I tried to stay attached to the sidewalk so nothing nasty would get in the pool. But after catching a little too much water in the face, I lost my grip and started floating to the deep end. But he didn't think much of it and focused his attention toward hosing the sidewalk off and getting things into the beds of shrubbery adjacent to the pool. The food, for want of a better word. I do not remember whether you or Scott told me out of the pool, but someone did come to my rescue. The next thing I knew, I was in the living room, shivering, but covered in towels and happy to see a barf bowl in front of me and occasionally using it for just that purpose. Not long afterward, my stomach was empty, but I was still heaving. I had drunk too much of the wrong combination of alcohol, and I was paying the price. Between that couch and the toilet in the master bathroom, Scott seemed to identify it as the easiest to use because it had more floor space for the appropriate genuflection, and also that made it easier to clean. But truthfully, the rest of the night was just a blur. Here's what I do remember. I remember that you were there for me. You were concerned, caring, supporting, even my defender. When the gay guys were complaining about about my poor behavior, you reminded them that gin would have been a better answer, and that I wasn't normally a fool who didn't know how to drink. Thank you for that. I mean, even the gay guys were pretty supportive. I got harsh words and I needed to get harsh words. One of them provided the answers to the medical questions that were troubling me. What are dry heaves? How do you make them stop? Scott was off the scale generous. If I were him, I would have kicked my ass. "'Buddy, always the best in these situations, "'drove me home and poured my sorry bud into bed. "'You may have helped too, I don't know. "'Scott or others may have helped as well. "'It seemed to me, though, that Buddy took charge. "'He was the only one prepared for anything "'my parents might have wanted to know. "'The story doesn't end there, of course. "'The story is really about you, not me. "'I went to sleep that night feeling terrible, of course, "'but not in distress. "'I could have really been worried.' Perhaps I should have been. It seemed to me, though, that you were in very good hands. Buddy would have done all the same for you. Scott was, again, a fantastic host. It's not like I needed to worry about the gay guys hitting on you, for one thing. Most of the other people at the party were young women. Or maybe they had left or they were leaving. If I was turning a corner and beginning to take a relationship with you seriously, then I could pick that thought back up after the hangover the next day. Oh, the next day. Ouch. I want to say it still hurts just to think about it. Missing church was always a possibility, and my parents knew that. If I had stayed at the party all night, we may have gone to church with Buddy and Scott the next day. More likely, though, none of us were going to go anywhere. When my parents saw Buddy assisting me up the stairs, they already knew I wasn't going to be in church on Sunday. I figured I also wasn't going to be helping out with the car wash at their church, at Buddy and Scott's church the next afternoon, either. No one told me I was grounded, and no one needed to. The truth is, my parents never spoke a word to me about that night. There was some general talk about the dangers of binge drinking, and I must have convinced them that I got the message. I truly believe it was a one-time situation, and I must have conveyed that somehow, Still, in spite of dodging consequences, I felt terrible. All the side effects that I richly deserved came my way in full force. I was nauseated, dehydrated, fearing more dry heaves every time I drank something, far too afraid to eat, and not tasting food all that well when I eventually did eat because my tongue felt like it was covered in fur. When I finally did get on my feet enough to consider my next move, I ended up facing the worst news of all. Again, I wasn't told that I was grounded, so eventually I asked if I could go to the car wash and ask Buddy to fill me in on what happened. It's possible that my parents agreed because they wanted to be filled in too, and wisely figured that I didn't remember much anyway. For your sake, though, for your sake, and for the sake of sheer humor, I'm going to try to recreate that conversation with Buddy. Imagine me, feeling oppressed by the late afternoon sun, and getting an uncomfortable memory about the last time I saw Buddy holding a hose. Well, Buddy was standing there with an open hose, rinsing off the occasional car that reached his point in the car wash rotation. "'You look like hell,' he said, "'and I bet you feel even worse.' "'Oh, yeah. There is hell, 300 miles of putrefaction, and then me. "'Parents kill you yet?' "'No, and I get the impression I'm getting off light.' grounded he asked skeptically well i just assumed that Uh, you might say i've grounded myself for now i'm fearing much worse though day's not over yet no but i think i've seen the worst but he smiled nervously what i asked you haven't seen the worst he said trust me you haven't seen the worst there's something else i asked cringing because my raised voice had kick-started the hammering pain in my head again. Yeah, and I don't think it's wise to tell you right now. Bad? I asked. Bad. I gotta be honest, buddy. How bad can it get? I mean, I don't think I could possibly feel worse than I do right now, so you may as well hit me. Are you sure? He asked. You could tell that part of him really wanted to drop the bomb. At the very least, he had a lot on his mind. Do your worst. Okay, I probably didn't have that much flair. I probably just nodded at him. says, Greg, did you notice anything special about our mutual girlfriend's behavior last night? Did she give you any indication that there was something on her mind? I shook my head twice. Well, she had been planning something for days. Heck, maybe even weeks. I don't know. And she didn't tell you anything? No. Well, man, last night was your night. What does that mean? I asked your night. I know there was talk about both of you spending the night at Scott's. Yes, Greg, she thought you both might be spending the night at Scott's together. She was ready and she thought you might be ready too. I just stared at him speechless in a defense mechanism. Maybe I wasn't even fully comprehending, Buddy nudged me. She thought you might want to suck on something more than toes. You know, get it? Get it? Why is this bad news? I asked. Well, she slept with Scott instead. So for all I know, they're still over at his place cleaning up, so to speak. I shook my head in disbelief. Buddy said, hey, sorry you missed out, my friend. Wine, wine. You should never drink wine again, ever. The rest of Buddy's words were a combination of sympathy, encouragement and a general stop-feeling-sorry-for-yourself-and-get-a-move-on vibe. For my part, I was confused by everything Buddy had said about you. I was happy for Scott, I suppose, but perhaps I was happy for you, too, if everything Buddy said was true. Did I feel sorry for myself? Well, yes, and now only partly due to the hangover and the 20 bucks I'll never see again. Still bitter about the 20 bucks, who knew? There have been times in my life, my friend, when I've said no to a sexual encounter with a woman who was ready to take that step with me. You already know by now that my statement's a bit of a reach. That's okay. It was a similar reach with all three women. No, you you never actually made the offer and, and I never actually said the word no. How could I? I was too busy throwing up and heaving. But again, if Buddy had the correct information, then I still feel on some level that I let you down or at least there is a you and me that never happened because I made some decisions that screamed no at you in a very inconsiderate way. To get back to my original point, how was I supposed to respond if my sister had asked what you and I were up to? and would have disapproved of the drinking, granted, but how on earth could she have handled these two stories? One with your foot in my mouth and the other with my foot, figuratively speaking, in my own mouth, When I wasn't hurling, that is. Anne loved us both. But I don't think she was prepared to deal with any of this. Do you love Star Trek? How about a good scary movie?
1: Do sexy warrior princesses haunt your dreams?
0: Then you'll love Starbase 66, the international Star Trek horror and fantasy podcast. Join Rick, Karen and Kennedy each week as they discuss your favorite and not so favorite movies and TV shows only on the simply syndicated 21st century media network. As I mentioned, that's not the first story. The first story happened more than a year earlier. And in this one, I think I'd like to just do a cold reading of everything that's on the page. And I do so with a tremendous amount of uh, concern, because, again, these were letters to myself written not to be shared, and certainly not to be shared with the woman in this case that I'm going to refer to as Kay. And I think if I've got any recollection of writing this at all, Buddy plays a role here too. Maybe not his real name, but certainly a real friend. We'll see. Back when we were dating in high school, it's scary to think how early in high school, when we were sophomores... I had a dream about you. I'd never had a dream quite like this one before, in fact. We were alone together in a house, presumably yours. I was wearing shorts and a t-shirt. You were wearing jeans. I was lying on my back on the floor, and you were sitting on my chest. At first, I thought I couldn't see your face because you were looking back toward my pants, and I was embarrassed because my increasingly erect penis was escaping my shorts." Then I realized from the sound of your voice that you probably were facing forward, maybe even looking downward, and I still couldn't see your face over or even between your very large exposed breasts. Why in the world would I even consider sharing this with you? I would understand if you considered it very rude, although I also would understand if you were somewhat flattered. For me, it was a compartmentalizing sexual experience. I woke up both tired and confused, not to mention a bit concerned about the laundry. I'm sharing it with you because the dream functioned on two levels. Your face, totally obscured by the view of your breasts from below, was symbolic of other compartments, some separations or divisions, if you will. I was hearing your voice without really knowing the mind behind it. I couldn't tell whether you were focusing on my face or what was happening to my shorts. I honestly didn't know whether my excitement was a response to you, Kay, or just to your breasts. I apologize. I'm sorry if this offends you. If it doesn't, I'm sorry it took me a quarter century to tell you the truth. Either way, I acknowledge that this dream still cannot provide sufficient explanation for why I broke up with you. The trouble is, this story actually is the reason. For better or worse, it is the only explanation I have. My only hope is that you understand why I kept all of this to myself. There's no good way to break up with someone. I never found a good way anyway. Too much information, as this letter illustrates, I'm sure, is not necessarily better than too little. I just knew that I needed out, and I felt strongly that doing so when I did was the best thing for both of us. I'll try to explain, but I know there is no way to really explain this type of thing. I liked you we wouldn't have dated otherwise. I was not an aggressive person, so you know I wouldn't have acted with a sen- without a sense of purpose. I wasn't looking to score, and I didn't feel that I needed to address issues like boredom or proving I was one of the guys or anything like that. No, I liked you. You seemed okay with my sense of humor and seriousness, my pride and what little I had to be proud of, and other contradictions I may not have even noticed myself. You like to kiss, and didn't seem to mind that I was just learning myself, and if you were honest, I think you'd recognize my appreciation for your physical attributes, and at the same time, my reserved behavior. Gentlemanly, even? Maybe not. Those are all positives. I don't think you can break up with someone while giving off this big list of positives. That strikes me as hurtful, particularly if the pros seem to overwhelm the cons, because that's just confusing. What sense does it make to explain something in a way that is so bewildering that the explanation itself needs to be explained? I think you knew all these things anyway. You saw the way I looked at you in the pool when we were swimming with my church's youth group. I tried not to look, actually, but I failed, and you noticed me looking down. I wouldn't be shocked if you had a sense at a certain time that I was having issues keeping everything in place, so to speak, within my genes. I feel confident in these assertions because of one party after a football game, the same night as the dream I mentioned, in fact, just before my dad came to pick us up, around midnight, the motion of your large breasts rubbing down the length of my arm was too consistent and linear to be accidental, lingering too long to be caused by someone bumping into you, and with no explanation offered as if you knew that no explanation was necessary. I had a feeling that I might no longer be in control. The dream suggests that too, in a pretty graphic way. There was more, by the way, so I guess I'm still trying to be honorable by censoring the rest. I felt that feeling years later with my wife. I didn't resist. You can say that age was a major difference if you'd like. That's both a good and positive way of looking at things. I also would say that my wife and I were meant to be together. I didn't distance myself from her. But I chose to break up with you. And let me confess something. That decision was not smart. Now please don't misunderstand me. I do not regret the decision. I wish you all the best and have very warm feelings for you, but everything I've said in the letter is true. But nothing I have said is nearly as true as this. Marrying my wife is the best thing that has ever happened to me, and my life has been richly blessed as a result. That said, breaking up with you at the time I did was not consistent with conventional wisdom some friends who remain nameless buddy told me that I should hit it before I quit it that logic said that I could always break up with you later after I got a closer look so to speak i never got that closer look and i may have been right to believe that i could have part of that decision was out of respect for you and part out of worry for how a scorned woman might retaliate Most of it, though, is based on what I call possible world theory. I'll explain that in more detail, but first I'd like to summarize. I looked into a future where we made a lifetime commitment to each other, either on purpose, being smitten, or by unintended consequences, and I was not happy. It was not fair to you for me to be unhappy, either. Someone who would have seen your face in that dream, and not just your chest, for example, would have been deprived of his happiness as well. I believe in possible world theory. To me, it is the best way to understand how human beings can freely make choices with consequences that we must face while at the same time surrendering to God's providence over everything in the universe. Okay, there are an infinite number of possible worlds. God created them all, and his will is sovereign over all. In one of those worlds, I broke up with you when I did, in the way I did, and for the reasons I did. We live in the world where that happened, and I didn't adequately explain it to you. There are other possible worlds where I attempt to explain it using increasingly comic and ridiculously inept excuses. There's a possible world where where we never break up, and maybe even one where that somehow makes both of us happy. I just never saw that world. When I prayed at night for guidance, wisdom, and strength, the Lord placed a different set of possibilities in orbit around me. Yeah, that's right. I prayed some of those prayers sought help resisting temptation. You see, God placed the breakup worlds in my orbit as a better answer, I think, a preferable alternative to other possibilities within my view. I was naive. You know that. I didn't want my first borderline sexual experiences to come with a nice girl that I already knew I wouldn't be with much longer. Frankly, I was aggravated by the nocturnal emission for that very reason. It was too close in my mind to a sexual experience with the wrong woman. You should not read this as an insult. Wrong cannot possibly mean unattractive or any other self-loathing that was so typical of teenage girls. It was a wet dream for crying out loud. No, in this case, wrong simply meant not forever. Here's where I totally misunderstood all that I'd been taught about human sexuality in home, at church, in books and other resources. I thought the first woman that you sleep with stays with you forever in a subconscious way, meaning that none of the other women in the world linger in any way whatsoever. Isn't that pretty much what we were taught in school? Don't do it because you never forget the first time, they told us. But no one ever defined what do it truly meant. The dream about you never happened in reality. My memory of your body at that post game party probably happens in a crowded elevator every day to someone somewhere in the world. None of that should register with me you see because i have been with one woman only one if you have to describe the right woman in a limiting way that's a whole life thing my wife is my first sexual experience she's the one i dream about the only cross reference i have trust me it is a phenomenal blessing but i didn't understand the emotional impact at least for men of the ones we turn down the few who have heard me say no I mean that figuratively, of course. We never spoke about such things. Still breaking up with you was my way of saying no to you. I just felt it was better to block any possible conversation with a yes-no option. You may have become outraged if I'd actually told you no, and I could have been stuck managing angry accusations about my sexual preferences. In school, those types of accusations often turned into fistfights. Consider the unspeakable violence at Columbine High School in Colorado, and whether the word fag played any role. What a double whammy that would have been. Miss out on sex with a top-heavy woman and then get beaten up for being gay when I'm not. So, I said no to that possible world, completely, and I did so preemptively. There is, of course, another possibility. It is possible that I would not have said no to a discreetly and emphatically proposed sexual encounter. What then? "'Well, it annoys me enough to recall these things about you that I'm sharing in this letter. "'I have no doubt that my wife would find it very hurtful if I had more to recall. "'I'm so glad that I can say that she should not be hurt by this. "'I remember you in a swimsuit. That's it. "'Would I have said no if you'd offered to show me more? "'In my dream I didn't say no, "'but it was a, as a result of that I was left with a mess to clean up. "'I don't doubt that you perceived then—' and still perceive now that my breakup with you was cowardly. You were probably on target there. Grant me this, though. I am one of the very few men who ever said no to you in the circumstances I describe. It's funny, however, that I only succeeded in saying no by not letting myself get into a position to answer you one way or the other. You're one of what I'm going to call the three women in the world I've said no to. And as a man who isn't a player, to use the more modern term, that's kind of a staggering number, or at least I'm going to keep telling myself that it's impressive. The truth is, I've never actually said a word about doing it to any of these women, at least not to them. You know your story. I broke up before the question was even raised, although maybe not long before the question was raised. What about the others? Well, I'm, I passed out once, unintentionally, and the other story is too sordid to tell here. Suffice to say, you were the only one who heard me speak at all. Even if I failed to answer your questions or provide a meaningful explanation, please know that my respect for you guided my decision, timing, and action. With sincere hopes for your happiest possible world, Greg. Hi there, this is Stu the Beard Perry entreating you to please listen to our show for those about to rock on SimplySyndicated.com.
1: Please listen to our show, please!
0: As I've mentioned, part of the reason that I remember these things is because at the time, and still to a degree now, I suppose, I'm a writer. I journal. And if I find something to be important enough to recall, I'll commit it to what I call sacred history, this writing project. And some of the ones before it, especially those related to Lent, have a lot to do with that sacred history. And of course, it helps me to remember if I've told the story, not just to myself, but to a version of myself that still has a relationship with some of these people from my past, and maybe that's a little bit odd, maybe it's just a writer's conceit, I don't know. But for the last story, I'm going to have to wing it, because I never got far enough into that particular Linton writing experiment to get to the letter that needed to be written to someone named Unknown. There's something a little bit wrong about this story, and I think that there's no way to tell it in a way that whitewashes that. first, one thing, I'm going to remember the names of, of the men who are involved, you know, Steve and my roommate and V8 Nate and his roommate and the resident assistant, also a Steve, so I'll distinguish them in that manner. And I don't remember the name of the woman who's actually the centerpiece of the story. In fact, I'm not 100% sure that it's even legally accurate to call her a woman. I'm going to call her Sealy, not because it means anything. It's close to being where she was from or her high school, but I don't remember her name and that I'm going to have to deal with. But I have to start the story with the men who were involved. And let me roll back to something I think I've actually shared before about North Carolina State basketball and the North Carolina State basketball team winning the NCAA tournament. And there being one person in the entire dormitory, not just my floor, but the entire dormitory, there may have only been one person in the entire freshman class of this Midwestern university who had predicted as early as January that the North Carolina State Wolfpack were going to win the national championship that year, that they were going to upset Ralph Sampson's Virginia team and Michael Jordan's North Carolina team just to get out of the ACC and earn a bid to the tournament where they would be seated as, you know, a fourth or a fifth round team and And have to overcome a quadruple overtime game in the first round just to survive long enough to get their feet wet. And the prospect of this team making it to the second hotel room to move from the first tournament bracket to the second tournament bracket seemed a little bit far-fetched. But we were watching that second weekend's worth of games surrounding the TV, part because it was a great tournament. I mean, the NCAA basketball, March Madness, is always a great tournament. But this year was particularly a great tournament with... What, from my experience watching college basketball, was a previously unheard of amount of talent on television all day long. And this was a Saturday afternoon watching the game. You know, I'm assuming it was the game between North Carolina State and UCLA. It was third-round game, for want of a better word, or maybe it was the fourth-round game because it was Saturday. Watching the games, and we're watching it in Steve's room. And we're using Steve's room because Steve had a television. Steve was one of the upperclassmen on this particular animal house of a dormitory floor where the resident assistant had no control over the floor and didn't even presume to. He was going to be out of town that weekend and gave his key to Steve because Steve had told him that he was going to drive more than an hour. So something like a almost three hour round trip to pick up a girl that he had met who was still in high school. So two grades younger than him. Although according to his testimony, she was older than her age. And he of course was maybe slightly younger than his age. So young sophomore, and she was 18 years old, despite being a senior in high school and had parents who for whatever reason didn't find this arrangement to be at all disturbing, or she had not been honest with her parents. And there was some deception involved on that front. And I think that again, with the retrospective years and being older, Uh, Her behavior was fairly reckless, and you could look at that recklessness as saying, well, this is going to be a problematic story, isn't it? And it very well could be, except that she seemed to be a volunteer to the recklessness, which as a parent doesn't make it any less disturbing. But as a freshman in college, barely 18 years old myself, this didn't concern me. I was 18 years old and was in a position to take reckless chances if I wanted to, and so was she. So we were, for one thing, a little bit... Confused and skeptical about Steve anyway. Steve had a girlfriend, and a girlfriend that on one level he seemed quite committed to, but on this other level, with her being out of town as well, didn't mind cheating on her. It was unclear whether they had an open relationship or whether this was truly behind her back in every sense of the word. And to be honest with you, I didn't know enough, and maybe at the time didn't care enough, to understand any of the backstory. How did he know her? It wasn't his high school, this wasn't somebody he knew from the past, but he had gone and spent most of the early part of the uh, afternoon driving all the way to this, you know, city and back to bring Seeley back with him. And again, our expectations were low. There were two quirks about Steve that had to be understood. First, he, like V eight Nate, picking from the mixed bag of beauty, didn't really have the highest standards. Although his girlfriend, the one to whom he was presumably committed on some level, was a very attractive woman. The other thing, though, was that there was something fundamentally wrong in their relationship, something flawed in Steve's relationship with his girlfriend, that I think probably made him reckless and careless. He wanted to get married and have kids, and she didn't. So it was kind of a sex role reversal of what you might think is the classic, you know, male-female gender roles mindset of people who are early in their college experience. And he was continually having unprotected sex with her, or you know, kind of sabotaging his own use of condom. Because he was convinced that he was sterile, and he figured that if he wasn't capable of getting her pregnant anyway, what did it matter? This was before we had any understanding of AIDS, and whatever understanding we had of things like herpes was, was very vague at best. We weren't really, as college freshmen, particularly worried about gonorrhea or syphilis. So it didn't seem that strange. If you really believed that you were incapable of getting a woman pregnant because you were sterile. But Steve didn't care about that either, because in Steve's mind, if he got her pregnant, she'd have to marry him, and that's what he wanted anyway. And yet, he was cheating on her. So we're watching this North Carolina State basketball game, and frankly, entranced by every moment of it. It was the first game, really, in the tournament where I felt, as a fan— a little bit at ease. I felt like the team had played well and we're going to win. So it was it was either the again, either the UCLA game, which I think was kind of tight, or maybe it was like the game after that, where they actually finally got a, an opponent that they were able to overmatch. But I was still committed to watching these games on television. My priority was North Carolina State basketball until I saw Sealy with my own two eyes. And if you'd asked me to bet on what this high school senior was going to look like and whether she was worth the drive, worth the two-hour round trip each way, I would have said that there was no way that I couldn't conceive of it, not based on what I knew about Steve, and frankly, just not based on the whole the, the whole principle of this weekend thing he was doing. It just didn't make sense. But there's a line from a 1980s movie, must have these 80s films in my head, where a character is talking to another one, and they're talking about some girls that they'd met, and one of them says, you know what? this is the first time in my life that I've ever seen Playboy tits that weren't on the pages of Playboy. And that line of dialogue popped into my head when I remember seeing this woman for the first time and thinking to myself, well, yeah, that was worth the drive. From my memory, she was a natural blonde. I don't recall too much about her face, to be honest with you, but she was very well endowed with a very balanced figure. So um, baby head front, baby head back, it was all working, right? And I remember even for that one moment feeling, A, a little rogue twinge element of jealousy to say, this guy actually, for the first time in my experience, hanging out with him, has, he's hit the jackpot. He's followed through on what he said. He made some big, bold statements about how unbelievable and incredible she was. And he was, well, he was right this time. But on the other hand, I'm kind of sitting there saying, you know what? This is the trickiest part of my relationship with the woman that I'm now married to because we dated for more than a year while we were both in high school. So a year and a couple of months. And this was the year where I'm an hour and 20 minutes away, give or take. And I'm a freshman in college and she's still in high school. And we knew that we were both going to be at the same university when she was a freshman after this one year. But this year of being apart, we kind of had to be managed pretty well. And what I basically said was, hey, there's going to be situations where I'm going to go on dates. I mean, there's either going to be formal events where I'm invited, where it just makes sense. There's going to be things where one of my roommates, and I had many, <laughs> one of my roommates may want to go on a double date, and it just makes sense for me to cooperate with that too. But I basically said, hey, you know, uh, my first time is not going to be with anybody else but you. I'm going to make that promise. I'm going to keep that promise, even despite being a freshman in college. Well, those are big, bold words. Those may be big, bold words that maybe your average 18-year-old or 17-year-old at the time I probably made that pledge, you know, couldn't live up to because, again, you're in this environment. You don't know anything about it. You're far away from home. All bets are off. And what if the person that you're face to face with looks like Sealy? And what if the person that you're face to face with, who looks like Sealy, says, you know, this Steve guy's a jerk. I'd rather spend my time with you. I'd rather spend all my time with you. If you know what I'm, if you know what I mean. And pretty much as I kind of snake my way through this story, that's going to be how it plays out. And, is perhaps as relatively unbelievable, at least to me, seemingly unbelievable, that I somehow successfully said no to those other two occasions. This one is the most unbelievable one of all. I didn't suddenly pass out in a in a drunken stupor. I didn't um, have any reason to worry about the consequences of this girl and any future relationship with her. But I did have to worry about the notion of my future relationship with the woman that I'm now married to and this idea that that first time was in the future with her And that wouldn't be true if there was any sort of first time with this woman instead. Now, having been someone with almost no real sexual experience, you'd think if you were naive that that would mean that I would have not the first clue of what to do. But you actually C.S. Lewis has an interesting story to tell about the person who has done the most resisting of temptation is the one who understands what temptation is all about more than anyone else. You don't really understand sexual temptation if you give in every time the opportunity presents itself. But in resisting a force is the first time you really come to understand the strength and the drive and the power of that force. And I had been resisting that force. Frankly, it was a mutual thing. Both my wife and I had been resisting that force. But I kind of understood sexual temptation pretty well. And I was not clueless about what I might do if there was an occasion where I was either going to fulfill that vow or break that vow. So the way this thing played out was that Steve had the key to the residence assistance room. and The real advantage to having an RA room in a dormitory floor is that you didn't have to deal with the communal bathroom. It was the only room on any one of these floors that actually had a private bathroom attached to it shower sink, the whole nine yards. And with that key, he essentially had what you might consider to be the master bedroom suite of the entire dormitory environment. Now, there's several things going on here. We still have the disturbing aspect of college sophomore, high school senior. We have the girl far away from home and how consensual is her behavior? We also have the rules that after two o'clock in the morning on a Saturday morning, you know, late Friday night, you're not you're allowed to have girls in the dorm at all. But his ability to provide a restroom facility and a sink and all that by having her in the residence assistant room pretty much meant that no one had to know she was there, that he was going to get away with it. And the thought was, well, the basketball game I cared the most about was over. My team won. Let's go out and celebrate. Let's you know throw on a a change of clothes. Let's um, get ready. We'll head out to the bars. Maybe we'll grab a, a bite to eat along the way. And This couple's going to go with us. We'll get a chance to observe this dynamic. We'll get a chance to see just how on the up and up Steve's been about everything. Is this still some calculated, you know, sort of hoax or something? Or is it for real? And then, you know, when the night's over, we're expecting them to head off to the master bedroom like, you know, sort of mom and dad of the dorm floor. It didn't play out that way. If I remember the other stories because I journaled about them, and I've got this gap here because I didn't journal about it. Part of the reason is, I've told this story a few times before. This is an interesting, you know, sort of locker room equivalent of a story to tell. But it also is kind of a sneaky one because it has a moral to it. Part of the reason I'm not, you know, likely to forget the story and haven't throughout all these years is just how incongruous and disturbing I find this turn that's about to occur. Now, I'd gone through the roommate adventure. I'd had the luck of the draw a couple, three times, and I'd finally engineered in this second semester we're in kind of the month of march now we're in march madness i'd engineered a switch to where i i have my own roommate i finally have have a friend we've picked each other we've moved in and we're now in the same situation and this is a good guy a better guy than me frankly when i tell this story you'll see why and he kept me out of trouble He had a twin sister who was very nice, very attractive, and was not interested in dating. So the both of us had this sort of boyfriend at home, girlfriend at home situation where it was possible for us to double date with her brother where he could date around and she could keep an eye on her twin brother and I could have somebody to go with that I didn't have to worry about any of these other questions. So he was a great guy. And again, generally speaking, kept me out of trouble. And uh, V8 Nate was a wild man. I mean, if you haven't listened to the inappropriate conversations where I basically kind of tried the stand-up routine and tell the story of V8 Nate, I do give an accurate picture of what he was like. He was, you know, off the scale. Now, the one thing that Nate and I agreed about was that if you're going to have an intimate sexual encounter with a woman, especially if you're in the resident assistant suite where you've got access to a shower, you can make a mess, you can clean it up, and the woman looks like Sealy looked. Um, there really isn't any part of that situation you're not going to explore. So there's really, to me, I'm not going to have a first sexual encounter with someone who I'm not going to have that sexual encounter in every conceivable way. It is going to be digital. It is going to be oral. It is going to be sexual. There's going to be birth control involved. It would be the whole nine yards, right? And especially in this case, because there was really a lot of angles that were worth, well, for want of a better word, pursuing. Steve shows up we're still tying shoelaces and buckling belts. I mean, it hadn't been more than 10, 15 minutes tops between when we decided, let's accompany this couple out to the bars and restaurants tonight. And when he was coming back into our dorm room, I said, where's Celie? What happened? He says, oh, she's fine. She's, she's still in the bathroom. I said, well, we're going out tonight, right? And he says, absolutely, we're going out. In fact, she wants to go out with you. Essentially, Steve, pointing the finger at me, Saying he and his date for the weekend had had a conversation, I said, "Well, what went wrong?" So nothing went wrong. I already screwed her. Now me, V eight Nate, his roommate Dave, my roommate, are all kind of looking at Steve, trying to figure out what the heck's going on. I said, "Is there a problem? <laughs> you know, it was something. Is something bad happened? I mean, what are you talking about?" He says, "Well, I don't. I don't need to have sex with her again. I just had sex with her in the shower." Now. Again, my mind is reeling from all this information. First off, never in a million years would I expect that this particular girl would be pointing me out of the crowd of people that she'd encountered as the person she wanted to go out with that night, for one. For another, I didn't understand the concept of being done with her. (laughs) It didn't make sense that you you had a shower, you took a shower together, you had sex in the shower, you've ticked that off your list of things you're going to do today, and now you're done again. The Playboy comment wasn't just her breasts. This woman was Playboy everywhere. By the limited standard of what we might have understood as late teenage boys, this was the whole shooting match. Why in the world wouldn't you schedule a double header or a triple header? And for whatever reason, that, that wasn't his game. He was putting a notch in the belt, he was proving something to his girlfriend. I don't know what his deal was, but whatever it was, he was done with Sealy. And again, I was kind of speechless. And Steve clarified and basically said, well, not just you, she made a list. There were, of all the people that she'd met, and she met a lot of people. Again, you don't bring a hometown high school type girl into a dormitory environment and not have a lot of people want to meet her. And, you know, she looked like Celie did. Even more people wanted to meet her. She'd met a lot of people, but she pretty much narrowed it down to these two dormitory rooms, me and my roommate, VA Nate and his roommate. So now you've got this sort of uneasy competition at least going on psychologically in the minds of these four teenage guys, because now the information's completely different. Now it's not just me. I'm the guy with the high school girlfriend. I might say no, but you know what? It's possible that V8, Nate and Dave were suspicious of me. Homophobia being what it is and certainly what it was in the eighties that, you know, this guy hasn't gotten any local strange, you know, he's got this girlfriend, but what does that mean? He's not going to say no to this. We, we kind of know from his response, uh, and it wasn't any different from everybody else's response. You're not going to say no to this, right? I'm sitting there kind of realizing that this is mine to say yay or nay to. If, I, if the word yes comes out of my mouth, that's it. We're done talking. But something else was bothering me. Something in the back of my head said, hey, even if you wanted to make the wrong decision, I mean, I'm no saint here. I'm telling a bad story about my past. But even if I were to go down that possible world and allow that orbit to get close where I could see you know, kind of what that planet's like and all the bad things that I might be, all the good things I might be missing out, all the bad things that might be happening, something was bothering me and I needed more than ever. I needed my roommate to bail me out. He'd done it before. I mean, many times instead of going out with somebody where sex could have been on the table in a way that wouldn't have been ideal for my long-term plans, he and I had always done things in such a way that it was sort of understood. You know, there was no reason to fear any peer pressure or anything in that relationship, We were really good friends having just, you know, met as freshmen. And in this one occasion, he didn't bail me out. He basically looked at me and said, you're thinking about this, aren't you? And I said, well, I mean, I don't know. I didn't really have a good answer to that question. And he basically said, I'm out of here. I'm going to my sister's room. If you want to join me, give us a call. We'll either be there or we'll be at the gym. I'm out of here. And he left. It was me, V8 Nate, Dave. And the three of us are trying to figure out who's going to end up with this girl, because to me, it seemed very wrong for no one to end up with her. Now, on a a level where there's some sort of twisted chivalry, she's far away from home. This guy's a complete asshole. I don't think she signed up for a quickie in the shower and then I'm done talking to you for the rest of the night because I've had my way and it's over. So even if she was consenting and volunteering for everything else, and even if she was, again, consenting and volunteering for more to come, it just didn't make sense that she should be left in that sort of lurch. And so I was – there was that that one temptation to sort of say, hey, somebody needs to step up here and be a man because Steve's failing by that standard. But then the other thought was, how do you spend the night with this girl, not have sex with her and not have consequences inside your own dormitory environment between you and your roommate and your, your, your former roommate who is gay, no one's going to help bail you out of this situation. This is going to get ugly. And frankly, just being with her and facing that temptation is in and of itself going to be too much to explain later to your own hometown high school girlfriend. So I'm sitting there, my my head's reeling. I'm not thinking clearly enough to even know the other problem I've got. And the other problem I've got is consistent with V8 Nate. And I would later find out, consistent with Dave as well, that it just didn't make sense to go out with this girl with the intent of having sex with her and have oral sex with her off the table. That pretty much had to be on the table. That had to be part of the menu. Or it just didn't make sense to, well, to do it half-assed. We we were judging Steve in part because whatever it was he'd done, he'd done it half-assed. He'd not done it right. He hadn't done it the way that the rest of us thought, Yeah, it probably ought to be done. And then Dave bails me out, Nate's roommate. The light bulb goes up on his head in a way that it was only flickering and, and shorting out on top of my head. And he looked at Steve and he says, Did you use a rubber? Steve says, no, you know I never use a rubber. I'm sterile. And Dave goes, well, I'm assuming you pulled it out. You were in the shower. There's no reason. He goes, no, I I let her have it. And then I sort of paused. And the impetus I needed to find the word I needed to say, forget about it. No, I'm out of here. Well, that tipped the scales for me. I was going to not want to be in that situation. I was going to want to be in a... (sighs) I didn't want to be in a gangbang. I didn't want to be the second person. And on some level, there might have been a way to conceive that it wouldn't be that way. It wouldn't really feel that way, but not with Steve's revelation. It was going to be you were the second one in. And V8 Nate, who again, he's V8 Nate. He would do anything. He was about anything. There was no limit. I think part of the reason that he was so successful that freshman year is because there was nothing he'd say no to. He looked at me. He looked at Dave. And in his... Southern drawl said, you guys are just a bunch of fags. His attitude was that he couldn't believe that we're going to say no to this over something as minor and trivial as being the second one in. And on some level, you know, you can understand why he might react that way. Again, this was Celie and she could have walked right out of the pages of an adult magazine from a physical perspective. But again, I'm part of me is wrestling with the fact that, hey, from a mental perspective, we're still talking about a high school girl. This might not add up. And second, this guy's already been kind of a jerk to her. Uh, I don't think she's going to want this feeling of being passed around. But third, I don't know that I would want to be in a position to say yes to her and only say yes partly. And I'm not going to say yes in these circumstances. Dave, once again, being the voice of reason and the person who was doing all the talking, because I was basically speechless throughout the conversation, looked to his roommate, Nate, and said, you know, you can call us a bunch of fags all you want to. But the next time you want to taste Steve's come. his room is right down the hall. You might be able to talk him into accommodating. And that was the end of that. I called my roommate at his girlfriend's room and we went off and we had, you know, a normal quiet Saturday night for our standards. VA Nate went with Seely, and earned some different color of wings besides red wings that particular night. And Dave and I both, I think, were quite satisfied that whatever decision we made was the right decision. Steve had already told us point blank. He likes the girl. He thinks she's very nice. He doesn't have any issue. He's not upset. She's not upset. This is kind of what they signed up for, and he's still going to give her a ride home tomorrow. So after she spent at least the night with both Steve and Nate, she got the ride home. Steve took the two-hour round trip. We hung out in his room with the good TV and watched the Sunday games and NCAA March Madness. But on some level, there was some part of me that was never the same after that night. It was, in some weird, twisted little sexual way, a hypothetical Sophie's choice. And to be honest with you, do I make the right decision if Steve hadn't been an asshole? Of course, would I have had a decision to make it all if Steve hadn't been an asshole? And the answer to that question is no. But for that one evening, the combination of my own personal homophobia, my commitment to to my girlfriend, and my long term vision of what the relationship could be withstood the temptation of this one moment, and was actually, of these three stories, the first time that I actually said no by letting the word no come out of my mouth. Now, theoretically, if I'm Steve, I don't go back to Seeley once she's dressed to go out to the bars and tell her who said no. So, once again, of these three stories, I don't believe I actually said no to any of them. But I said no to myself and from the perspective of a letter to myself, that's an incredibly valuable perspective and something to hang on to because there is a difference between having a premarital sexual experience that you're going to have to live with for the rest of your life and carry as baggage through any future sexual relationships you have. That's naive and that's too simple for reasons that I hope are obvious. These three letters to myself are still being carried with me throughout my years. Because whether the experience was in a dream, whether the experience was truly just ships passing in the night and missed opportunity due to drunkenness and foolishness, or whether it actually was a choice that had to be made where the answer yes or no had to be spoken, something real happened in those occasions. It may not have been sexual, but it also doesn't fade away. <laughs> Due to the length of this show, I'm going to give the different drummers short shrift again today. And this has been pretty consistent when I've hit some of these different drummers about whom there really is no way to be comprehensive. There's no way I can cover in a very short five, 10, 15 minute segment, all I might have to say about Thomas Jefferson or Aristotle. And I don't have enough time to say all I might have to say about James Joyce as well. It may be enough to say though, that if I'm the kind of person who's writing letters to myself, then I'm probably the kind of person who's completely at ease with the literary style of James Joyce, not just streams of consciousness, but also the rest of whatever you may describe as going on in books like Ulysses. In particular, I'm a fan of short story. As an art form, the earliest manifestations of that was Edgar Allan Poe, but not long after Poe was the Dubliners by James Joyce. And really, one of the things that I think you can see when you leave the Dubliners and go into Joyce's longer work, Ulysses in particular, is that even though it is a novel and a lengthy one at that, it is made up of anecdotes. It's made up of scenes and vignettes. There is still a great deal of short story quality to it. Ulysses is also a book that, like, to me, the best poetry needs to be seen on the page because there's something in not just the storytelling style, which varies from chapter to chapter, but even the indentation, the annotation, the use of typeface, there are things in the written form, the visual element of the written form that really makes that book you know, pretty special. Maybe that I've got members of my family, my extended family, who don't understand what I may be saying if I make a reference to Stephen Dedalus or to Molly Bloom, but I make references all the time. And it's not a book that I've read through cover to cover and have passages memorized. I mean, compared to the number of times that I've read through, you know, most of the passages of the Bible, I owe a book like The Dubliners or The Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man or Ulysses a clear second look. To that end, having spoken passionately about the importance of the visual element of the written word on the page, the first audiobook I ever bought for myself, for my own use, that I want a book on tape, and back then it was on tape, was Dubliners. Even though I don't have a cassette player in the car anymore, I still have this particular collection with me, partly because I never really took the time to buy a CD copy of it, to repurchase it just to change the format, but it's actually fairly cool. You essentially have each one of the individual short stories in the Dubliners being read by a different voice that's essentially also a voice of Dublin. So you have Irish voices reading these Irish stories, including, in some cases, some well-known ones. Frank McCourt reads uh, Sisters. Colm Meany, famous from Star Trek The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine, reads Araby. And Jim Norton reads Counterparts. Araby was the first short story by James Joyce I ever read, the first actual piece of writing by James Joyce that I ever read. And Jim Norton from you know this particular collection, Reading Counterparts, was the through line for me when I noticed that the library had an abridged version of Ulysses with Jim Norton reading. I was familiar with his voice. I liked how that really worked, and I picked it up. And not only did it have Norton reading most of the book, they actually brought in a female reader to do the Penelope chapter so that the Molly Bloom monologue would have a, a Molly Bloom voice to go with it. I found myself very... Uh, disappointed, I guess, by the fact that it was simply just an excerpt. I mean, it was a four CD set, but it was a four CD set that was just bits and pieces, bits and bobs, if you will, of the book. So the very first book on CD that I requested for myself, I didn't buy it myself. I got it as a Christmas present, but my very first, this is my own personal copy of a book on CD, was a 24 disc collection of Ulysses. I haven't taken the time to Drop all of my listenings to podcasts and music in the car on my commute to commit to what might turn out to be more than a month of, you know, driving back and forth, doing nothing but listening to this particular book at that length. But it's in my collection all the same, and it is going to be something I do someday, because I feel like the work there has been you know, pretty well done, and it's a different way of taking it in. I have my doubts about how well a chapter like Circe will translate, where what you basically have is a play— or at least the spoken parts of a play. The question and answer segment, that might work pretty well. The one that's driven primarily by newspaper clippings and headlines, I again, I've got doubts. How well will the complete work translate? But it's a complete work that's worth pursuing. Now, the interesting thing to me about Ulysses is that the stories that I've just told, maybe all of them, definitely two of the three of them, would be so controversial if it was 100 years ago that I might find myself, just by telling the story, in big trouble with the law. Here's what Wikipedia says about obscenity allegations. Written over a seven-year period from 1914 to 1921, the novel Ulysses was serialized in the American journal The Little Review from 1918 until 1920. When the publication got partway through, there was a prosecution for obscenity. In 1919, sections of the novel also appeared in a London literary journal, The Egoist, but the novel itself was banned from the United Kingdom until the 1930s. The 1920 prosecution in the U.S. was brought after the Little Review serialized passage of the book dealing with the main character masturbating. The New York Society for the Suppression of Vice, which objected to the book's content, took action to attempt to keep the book out of the United States. At a trial in 1921, the magazine was declared obscene, and as a result, Ulysses was effectively banned from the U.S. In 1933, a dozen years later, the publisher Random House and lawyer Morris Ernst arranged to import the French edition and have a copy seized by customs when the ship was unloaded. And then they then contested this in a Supreme Court case, United States versus one book called Ulysses. In that ruling, U.S. District Judge John M. Woolsey ruled on December 6, 1933 that the book was not pornographic and therefore could not be obscene. A couple things about this in particular surrounding Joyce as a storyteller is that, first off, in the modern era with the internet, with the exchange of information that we have, we know that there are certain people living in the world, places like North Korea, perhaps China, who are living behind a virtual firewall. They essentially are Separated to one degree or another from the world. But it's hard for the rest of us to imagine being as separated from the world as you could be between 1921 and 1933. Right now, it's very hard, you would think, for even a U.S. government intent, obsessed with banning material that is quote unquote too adult in nature. How could you possibly succeed in that without turning the United States into a bigger police state? Than some of the communist nations in the world are the other thing is again Stories. I just related far more explicit than anything that's covered in Joyce's material So from the perspective of history, I'm going to name James Joyce as a different drummer for You know two or three main reasons First his writing style the kind of person who might have written a letter to himself and then turned it into a novel second the fact that he challenged obscenity laws without even actually personally really trying to make it happen his work living breathing and speaking for him in faraway countries and even after death challenging the standard that would allow for that kind of censorship to occur and third willing to tell what's going on inside the mind of a character even if what that character is thinking isn't real even if it's hallucination imagination memory hypothetical conversations like you know answering a, a would be catechism you know near the end of the book these are the sorts of things which i think connect with me as a surrealist as a neo surrealist and someone who is willing to make peace with being haunted by memories <laughs> on some level, I'm rather sure I'm selling myself short. There have been, in the years since I started that writing project, other moments in time that occurred to me where I'd probably also said no. I'm not going to take the time to relate that sort of story today, maybe on some future occasion. It'll be a story of me being so inept, so in my head, so unworldly, to not realize that somebody who had come into my hotel room and laid on my bed was making an offer. I was, on some level, that naive. So it's probably true that I've said no more than once, but I truly believe that these times that I've said no, both the ones that I recall vividly and the ones that I barely recall at all, revolve around the fact that I have placed myself in a specific orbit around one possible world, and my commitment to that possible world is so strong. That even in times when I'm dealing with issues or facing temptations, I believe that when I pray, that God answers those prayers, not by surrounding me with possible worlds that are full of temptations, and not by eliminating possible worlds, because I don't think that's even possible, but by placing answers which renew my resolve and my commitment to the relationship that I've established. I don't believe I could be happier than I am today. That's a bold statement. I think there's a lot of married couples who would never make that statement. I make it almost casually, like I almost take it for granted. And I wonder if on some level, these moments in the past of saying no, of not having sequestered myself and lived a monk's life or a nun's life, where I've never never encountered temptation, never had to deal with an adult situation, I think I'd been worse off if I'd been truly in that much of what we might consider to be a cliched abstinence-only kind of an environment. I was out in the real world. I was dating people. I was behaving in the way that all my peers were behaving. But if something different was going on, that difference was perhaps based on commitment and perhaps based on the intervention of God himself. Now, that's a statement of faith that I can neither prove nor disprove. I have no interest in proving it or disproving it. It's simply my experience of the path I've walked. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at hotmail.com. The show is available on Stitcher, dot uh, stitcher.com smarter way to listen to podcasts. When you're on the go, the website has show notes and comments enabled as well at www.inappropriateconversations.org. I can be found on Twitter at IC underscore Greg is me and this show Inappropriate Conversations has a Facebook page set up as a cause. Feel free to join me there. Thanks for listening.